Oh, hi there. Uh, it's Dostazapod. I am answering questions today. I uh, wanted to give a quick heads up. I will be making an announcement soon about a signing time at New York Comic Con, which is in two weekends from now. Uh, I have a very brief window in which I will be at the show. I figure that is the safest, best way to interact with you guys, but also sort of minimize uh, risk for people. So uh, keep your eyes and ears on our usual streams, and we will uh, post the information when it's ready, and uh, hopefully get to see you guys there. If you have anything you want me to sign, which sounds like an absurd thing to say anyway, um, bring it along, and I'll gladly do it. I'll have those very nice metallic sharpie pens aren't those so much fun they're they're just so satisfying to use um so uh whatever you want me to sign feet breasts children no problem i will break any law for you guys uh other than that it's the stazipod let's go we're gonna start with a question from our good friend gordon mckinnon hall And uh, I want to sort of ramble on about this topic, so I'm going to put him first, and we're going to have all the time in the world to cover this. Gordon asks, if you were tasked with carrying on the dark fantasy world of Berserk with your own characters, possibly Kray, how would you go about it? Um, So this is interesting to me because I have all these binders. Uh, They're called, literally, they're called scrapbook. They're made in Japan. Uh, I used to get them at Kinukanaya, and there are these just manila hardcore binders with craft paper inside, and you sort of, you cut out things that you like and you paste them on there. I don't know why I'm explaining a scrapbook to you guys. You all probably know what that is. But in any case, I have a couple volumes of these things, and each of them on the spine are labeled something specific. And my purpose with these scrapbooks is identifying aesthetics. Right, which can be kind of a, a tough thing to define clearly. Um, if you say Kafka-esque, most, most people know what that means, right? A Kafka-esque thing is very easy to comprehend and understand. It is a sort of sub-genre of horror, I guess you would say. And just with that sentence, you can kind of distill uh, the aesthetics of something. Lovecraftian is also another sort of great descriptor. Uh, even if you haven't read any of H.P. Lovecraft's books or seen any of his movies or, or uh, listened to his podcast that was very, um, very popular in 1901, um, you know what something that is Lovecraftian is. So I set about kind of uh, separating and, and putting into these books aesthetics and to try to hammer out what I think is behind these things. Or really kind of, I guess, have a contemporary collection of aesthetics post-1980. And so I have a couple volumes, and one of them is uh, mechs and suits and pilots. And you could probably figure out pretty easily what's in that volume. And uh, when I'm designing something like the diver, I may pull this volume out and I may look at all this wonderful referential art that other people have done and try to figure out what are the the key elements there and how can I infuse that into my designs. Um, I have a volume dedicated to the Microman aesthetic because I think that is 
a, you know, sort of contemporary aesthetic that is in a class of its own. Now, you can kind of trace where inklings of the Microman phenomenon came from, largely architecture that was popular in Japan that had a sort of sci-fi bend. But largely for me, that is an entire book of aesthetics into itself. Um, I also have something called the Nightmare Aesthetic. And the Nightmare Aesthetic, I would sort of put Warhammer in that, in that book. There is a lot of Warhammer art in there. But it is also Berserk. It is also Dark Souls and the Souls Born universe. And the Nightmare Aesthetic is sort of, you know, it's kind of horror. It's kind of fantasy. Uh, there are swords involved. There's magic involved. And there's a sort of grotesqueness to the creatures and monsters and characters that live in this world. I think Bloodborne also, you know, uh, obviously has a, a huge sort of uh, nightmare aesthetic to it. And I ponder a lot about this volume I've put together and how I would contribute to it. Um, there are stories I want to tell that would belong in this volume and would sort of reference this kind of aesthetics, but it is not my natural dwelling place. I, I think my stories, my characters are, um, I mean, there's obviously a violence to what I write, the stories I tell, but there's also a brightness to everything. There's a sunniness to it. There's a saccharine quality to the colors and the, the color schemes and the characters and almost a cartooniness to everything. Uh, so this is something that's kind of eluded me, but it is an area I want to step into. So with the passing of Muria, uh, you know, I think that the future Berserk is uncertain. I, I haven't been following it too closely, and I don't know if it's uh, already been decided or if, um, you know, it is going to continue on. Uh, full disclaimer, I am not current with the Berserk storyline. Um, I think I lost my trail somewhere around... Ooh, I don't know, maybe like volume number 38. That sounds about right. I'd have to go and check my notes. But I have not read uh, up to date with what's happening with Berserk. I, I have sort of followed the story long enough that uh, Guts and his team are assembled, which I think is really great with um, a bunch of names that I would butcher, so I'm not even going to say, but all the various characters that sort of form his second band of the Hawks, so to speak. So I guess my answer to Gordon's question, how would I carry on this sort of tale, this genre? Uh, my answer today is I don't know, but it is something I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to get the arithmetic down of what makes a story be this nightmare aesthetic. Like, what are the tropes? What are the ways you can subvert those tropes? How is it different from my current storytelling process? What are the settings? What are the real-world artifacts? Like, this is a, a equation I've been trying to sort out for many years. And I, I don't have the answer yet, but I do have a, a real strong sort of uh, burning urge to get to delve into this world. And I hope that it happens sooner than later. There is an important thing I will add to this that uh, Miyazaki, not the famous animation director, but rather the creator of the Soulsborn Souls universe, Dark Souls and Bloodborne, etc., uh, said about character design and monsters and things like that, he always uh, pushed his artists to 
have the creatures and the characters that occupy his world that are antagonistic to the, the main character or to you, uh, he always wanted them to be, to have a grace to them, a sort of crestfallen nature. He didn't want them to just be gory for the sake of being gory. He wanted there to be something almost regal about these creations. And I think that that's a really important part of what makes Nightmare Aesthetic separate from just a basic sort of horror property, right? There is a a grace and a beauty and almost a mythological feeling to a lot of the creatures that you interact with in these worlds. Next question from Charlie Pope. Do Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny exist in the world of Knights of the Slice? If they do, they would be there only as machinations of corporate greed, right? An excuse, a mascot uh, that spurs consumers to sort of buy more shit on a seasonal basis. Uh, There would not be sort of physical entities of these characters, uh, so to speak. Next up from Matthew Connolly, does Vecpire ever get withdrawals? If so, what happens to them? Um, We are definitely going to see a limit to Vecpire and what he can sort of do and uh, you know, a very finite ceiling that him and his powers can hit. Uh, but I don't want to sort of go too much into that because it is it would be a spoiler for um, the battle for Pangaea Island and a lot of things that uh, happen in that. But uh, if I haven't sort of talked about this on the pod yet, October is going to focus on the battle for Pangaea Island, hopefully culminating with the arrival of Chromega at the very end of the story. Um, things are a little crazy over in China. I know I've never said this before. And we are running into additional delays. And you're going to start seeing this with all the major companies as well. There's going to be a lot of pre-orders. People will be pushing back. Um, a lot of stuff is about to get hit with another round of delays. Uh, you'll start seeing announcements and things like that over the next week or two. Um, so I still hold firm that Chromega will be in everybody's hands by the end of the year, this year. Uh, Hopefully a lot sooner. Uh, With a little bit of luck, we still are on track for a fall arrival, which has always been his sort of target date. But where in fall is up for grabs at this point. But anyway, I digress. October will be focused on the battle for Pangaea Island, where we left things last. A army of hackermen had invaded... And we also came to suspect that Chromega, the leader of the tribes of Pangaea Island, may not be a good guy, and he may not be in charge of his facilities at this moment. So there's a lot that has to happen, and a lot is going to play out over the course of October. Some of this story we're going to tell during our live streams. Some of it will be in comic form, and there will be a, a great big ebook that... Uh, I hope to get out to you guys at some point in October so you can catch up on everything. But this is exciting. This is a long time coming. You're going to see a lot of characters from the past pop up again and pitch in to sort of liberate Pangea Island. And I hope they can because uh, the alternative is not looking good. Next up, it's the Tomimoto Zone with Lance Tomimoto. Did the Cherubium evolve or were they created? 
The origins of the cherubium are not even known to me. It is uh, veiled in history and in mystery. Uh, legend has it that they are the offspring of angels. Now, whether or not we choose to believe that, uh, I guess that, that lies with you. Next up, Jonathan Ortiz. Who made the biggest impact on you when it comes to how and why you write stories? As a fourth grade teacher where the focus is on writing at this grade, I'm impressed how well and developed your narrative structure, world building, and characters are. I dig the art as well, but that's a question for next week. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, you know, I, I, I do want to credit uh, the teachers I had. Uh, there were a few of them. I had like three teachers that saw uh, this was my sort of niche, right? And what they smartly, which is not maybe smartly a word, I don't know. Maybe my education fails me after all. Um, what they did was allowed me to not do class projects and just kind of focus on my own stuff. Uh, my art teacher, Mr. Richters in high school, he just let me do open lab. Uh, Mr. Caswell, my English teacher, and in middle school, Mrs. Beebe, who I've referenced before, um, you know, they all sort of just let me go off on a tangent. They saw that I liked writing and liked creating stuff. And, you know, that's very memorable to me to, to sort of have a little bit of concentrated time to focus on your ideas. I think that makes all the difference in the world. But, you know, also, um, I grew up in a small town in Connecticut, and they spent a lot of money on education. We had, like, a brand new middle school. We had, uh, you know, uh, iMac computers. We had Photoshop. So even when I was in middle school, I had access to all these programs and a computer lab and things like that. And by the time I got to college, I, I had already had about 10 years, you know, working with a mouse and drawing pixels and, and things like that. So I think also, you know, I just got lucky in where I grew up and that education was kind of a focus for, for that town. But I would say, you know, if you are a teacher and you can identify students that have that sort of spark for creative writing, um, you know, without getting yourself in trouble with the faculty, give those kids a little extra space, a little extra time. Let them, you know, let them uh, kind of freestyle a little bit. I think it it does sort of, it, it makes a huge difference. Moving on to Brent Lawson, he's got a great question here. Will we see the Verkill drop without the Cherubium pack, or is it a package deal going forward on this figure? Um, it is not a package deal, not by any stretch. In fact, these were two separate projects that just so happened to kind of intersect timing-wise. Um, they originally were very, very separate things. And... Uh, you know, just through sort of chance and happenstance, uh, they got combined narratively. So I think moving forward, there may be like one more deluxe style of, of uh, Verkill that includes the Cherubium heads, but largely you're going to see a divergent from here on out. Uh, you know, the body and the accessories are going to go very different paths and play very different roles in terms of narrative and characters and things like that. People have cherubium on the brain. Next up, Gabriel Tovar. You mentioned there are more cherubium animal species aside from the current ones, if I recall correctly. Could we be seeing more animal-type heads down the line? Absolutely. Um, none are sort of sculpted right now. None are finalized. But yes, I would love to do every creature under the sun as a head and continue to sort of do these 
accessory packs. Um, you know, I I think safely there's probably not going to be any uh, this year, uh, but maybe in 2022, which, as shocking as it is to say, is, is creeping up on us. Uh, maybe we'll have some luck next year. Moving along, we have Sean Gordon here. I've made all sorts of changes to my various life routines over the last couple of years that were necessitated by the pandemic, and I've noticed that a lot of those changes caused me to reevaluate the way I did things before and to refine those routines to cut out outdated thinking or old habits. Have you noticed this at all with producing Nights of the Slice? I know that there are some negative issues caused by the pandemic, but has it given you a chance to change how you do business for the better in a way? I would say yes, but it's more profound than just the Night of the Slice production, right? And I spent some time on the phone with Dowdy yesterday and we were talking about exactly this. There has been a paradigm shift. There is sort of life pre-pandemic and life post-pandemic, and it will not be the same uh, hereforth. So obviously, you know, the sort of immediate implications are uh, I can't get goods out of China in a reliable manner. So what does that mean? Well, that means likely Action Figure of the Month Club is no longer of the month next year. There's going to be some reconfiguring. There's going to be, you know, uh, see if we can keep a six-week schedule. Um, the amount of figures that get tooled in a single year, uh, that's going to change. That's going to be diminished. Uh, the, the sort of planning and purchasing of my line has to be rethought completely. Typically, I can tool a new figure and I can order a new product and I don't have the ca- I don't necessarily have to have the cash on hand for those orders because while I'm waiting for those items to be completed, I'm also launching sales and I'm making money and I'm banking money. So uh, in a way, business has been done kind of on future sales in a lot of respects. That's got to change. I now am not going to tool a figure and I'm not going to sort of purchase new goods unless I have that cash in the bank and already put aside because it's just too risky. The, you know, the increasing delays, um, it makes it incredibly, incredibly tough to sort of navigate. But zooming out in, in a bigger fashion, what we are now in is an era of limited resources. And it doesn't have to be that way. We have enough resources and enough means in this country to provide whatever any, any citizen might need. But because we have you know, an entrenched body politic that is all of the pre-pandemic generation, uh, they're going to keep things the way it is. They're going to keep things status quo. And part of that means the villainizing of China and the sort of Cold War that's brewing with China, which is a complete fallacy because, you know, something upwards of 90% of our goods, including our medicine, is made in China, and we can't afford to have sanctions against China or have a actual Cold War. So we have this sort of performative political theater where we say really harsh things towards them, but we don't actually take any action. All this rhetoric uh, affects my ability to do my core business, which is make action figures. And so I'm very happy that I have other avenues 
of this business, whether it's the Twitch and live streaming, which thanks to Wheel of the Nights is something that is bringing in small incremental money, but could grow to be something significant. Uh, Whether it's the Patreon, which is sort of the lifeblood of this project, while it never makes what I make in a single day during a sale, it is a really solid foundation in which the lights stay on and rent is paid and I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, selling off things to, to kind of keep the wheels moving. And then also the written word. You know, thankfully, I finally found an audience for people that want to read my comic books, my ebooks, my short stories. And the production of those things require very, very little resources. So the overall outlook is, um, for me personally, this is an era of limited resources. Uh, We cannot continue to manufacture things in China or using this very primitive sort of injection molding technique. Um, These things are going to become more and more scarce for me. I will not be able to make action figures in this manner for the rest of my time on Earth. So you should look at every single drop, every single new sculpt as a limited edition engagement because it is exactly that. So for everyone that complains they don't like a new figure or they wish that the boots were different on this character or they'd like to see this type of head sculpt, remember that you're able to purchase these things because you're in a certain place at a certain time in history and it is a, it is, you know, a microsecond in terms of, uh, you know, the, the age of the earth. And because all this will go away one day, hopefully not tomorrow, but could be relatively soon, uh, we should just be thankful that I can sort of make figures for the time being. And this is a true independent operation. There's very few of those in existence today. But I would say that, uh, you know, I view all this stuff without negativity. This is just simply uh, the way the world is. And if that means I have to write more stories and release less figures, that's okay. Uh, you know, I am prepared to do that. I, it's not, uh, you know, by any means the worst outcome that uh, could possibly be. Moving on to the next question from Jeremy Price. Rex and Vaughn have been fantastic central characters to the story and their friendship and differences really give the story a lot of heart. What led you to focus on them for several of the recent storylines? Uh, firstly, thank you very much. It's, it's quite a compliment. Um, you know, I think that uh, when you deal with a big world that is convoluted and complicated, like the world of Knights of the Slice, where there is there are things like alternate dimensions and uh, time travel and, you know... Uh, humanoid animal characters like all of that is a lot to swallow so i find that having a core relationship that is universally relatable to really helps uh the medicine go down so to speak and starting out i with knights of the slice i always wanted to get to rex and vaughn because i i think that that's just a strong dynamic you know it's kind of a throwback to the 80s buddy cop movies, you know, Lethal Weapon, Last Boy Scout, stuff like that. Uh, And it's really kind of fallen out of favor and not something you see a whole hell of a lot of. You know, I think of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably one of the first times you've seen just that dynamic uh, brought back in a major movie. 
And, um, you know, I think it sort of, it just resonates, right? Because we all have best friends, hopefully. And we all know the one person who's a wild card and always getting you and your group of friends into trouble. And you all know the guy who's a little bit too uptight, but, you know, pretty dependable. Um, it's all sort of universal themes. I think also because I, I sort of developed Rex and Vaughn so early, and there's been so many iterations of their friendship and their adventures that I really was able to finely tune over the course of a decade plus uh, their personalities and who they are and how they interact with each other and how each of them would handle a situation differently. Um, so, you know, I think all of that kind of makes for captivating characters. And uh, I, it, it gives me endless joy to think that other people sort of appreciate these these characters that I came up with so long ago. Like it's, you know, that is the thrill of a lifetime for sure. Our final question here, hopping over to Facebook, is from Mike Johnson. Will we be seeing any more of Chameleon Lime, or is his story finished? This is a fantastic question, and actually gives me an opportunity to reveal some changes and behind-the-scenes sort of things that uh, nobody probably knew about until now. So Chameleon Lime was a, a sort of very popular... Uh, Frankenslice character from long ago that kind of sold out pretty quickly. I think we did two iterations of him, if I'm not mistaken. And the baseline story was that he was a sort of uh, digitized backup of the mind of the long-deceased former leader of Knights of the Slice, Lime. And people really seem to like uh, Chameleon Lime. And I see a lot of builds to this day utilizing those Chameleon Lime parts. So the secret part that most people don't know is that there was a whole jettison storyline. Um, and this was what I had called at the time the Sons of Lime. And it was about this kind of movement of people that uh, were sort of coming together uh, under the idea of Lime as a sort of canonized saintly type character. And they were forming a brotherhood to, to uh, you know, seek justice in the world and, and go out and, uh, you know, through collective action, kind of uh, tip this scale in the direction of goodliness, I suppose. But the problem was I, I never really got footing with that story. I didn't know how to sort of legitimize uh, that this group would sort of pop up right? It, it didn't necessarily make sense on the human character side of things, and it was even harder to string that together in terms of, like, um, you know, uh, beings like the Micros and other, um, you know, non-human sort of entities, or, or entities from the Vector, per se. It was a really sort of uh, arduous thing, and I, I just never, I, the rubber never met the road. I, I couldn't figure out what the intersection was and, and how to bring all these different themes and ideas together. Uh, then I sort of uh, started to focus on Marson and his story and his home world and Mars and characters like the Dune Surfer. 
And what ended up happening was I changed the, the figures I had that were going to be Brotherhood of the Lime uh, into Martians. And they became the sort of two-pack, uh, the accessory kit with the green translucent parts and the um, shotgun trooper and sword master head. So those were sort of designed with a much different storyline in mind. And then as I became fixated in, in the Mars setting for storytelling, they got sort of transmutated into uh, Martians. And in fact, the response was so positive to Mars-related sets that, you know, we recently have had that sort of uh, Martian scout team that also did really well. So, um, you know, it's interesting that sometimes these things don't really end up in the place they're originally designed to be. But with all that being said, I would, you know, throw two caveats out there. One, uh, I don't think Chameleon Lime's story is necessarily done. I wouldn't count him out. I can't say I have an idea of where he intersects the story again today, but that could change. And I would say also, while those figures got sort of morphed into Martians, that's not to say that they may not be motivated by that same idea, by the death of Lyme sort of uh, affecting them. Now, how they would learn about it being Martians and being so far away from Earth and Earth politics, I can't say, but um, that's not to say that the Brotherhood of Lyme isn't still there, flowing through their veins, just waiting for... Uh, you know, a reason for it to be expressed. So that does it for this week's Q&A. Admittedly, a shorter episode, but I think that's all right. Since we have a little bit of free time, I'm going to post right after this uh, message a demo for the Pangea Island song. How wonderful that I get to torture all of you. I have a captive audience and I make you listen to my terrible music. It's It's a wonderful situation for me. But thank you to everybody for tuning in. Uh, Keep an eye out for our next sale on Tuesday. That's going to be a lot of fun as we kick off this Pangea Island story arc. And the only thing left to say is pizza out.